I want to begin by telling you a story of something that happened uh, just some weeks ago. I have some very dear friends. I've known them for 25 years. They live in a different state. And uh, they're just really great Christian uh, people. They have been a blessing in my life. And, you know, they were here for my wedding. And they are people that if, you know, if it works out on vacation, we like to see them. And just uplifting Christian people. And uh, we were stunned a few weeks ago to hear what happened to them uh, because uh, they were uh, hosting their daughter and her two children in their home, I think kind of around spring break. And uh, they, they live in the South and uh, the uh, one granddaughter was in the pool swimming. It was kind of late, you know, late afternoon, early evening-ish type time frame. And uh, out of the bushes next to the pool came two masked men with guns and they pointed them at the granddaughter and they said, they said, out of the pool now. And she was like, she's like nine or so. And so she's, you know, terrified. She gets out of the pool. She goes into the, you know, she said into the house now. So they go in through the back of the house, doors unlocked. And there my friends are with their daughter and their other grandson. And they pointed guns. They said, everybody's hands up right now. They put their hands up and they got them in a, together and uh, they said, all right, everybody to the master bedroom now. And uh, they started walking towards the master bedroom. And my friend, who truly is one of the godliest men I know, says to the guy that's uh, pointing the gun at him, he says, do you know Jesus is your savior? Now, I don't know about you, but I think about myself in a moment like that. I might be thinking a lot of things, but I don't know that I would be thinking about that as an evangelistic opportunity, right? Most of us are afraid to do that when there isn't a gun pointed at us. He, in that moment, says, and I don't know if maybe he'd played it out in his mind, if you knew you were going to die, possibly, what would you do? You know, the plane's going down. Do you witness to the person next to you? You ever have these kinds of thoughts? Maybe he had. Well, he enacted that plan that none of us think is ever going to happen. And he says, do you know Jesus as your savior? And the masked man with the gun said, yes, but I don't want to talk about it right now. (laughs) That is the honest truth. What happened? And they marched him down to the master bedroom and they duct taped him all, you know, uh, binding them. They took their cell phones. They threw them in the toilet. And they put guns to their heads and said, where is all the money in the house right now? And they told them, and they took their jewelry, and they took their money, and they took whatever, and they said, all right, keys to the car. We're not stealing the car. We're just going to drive it out of the neighborhood, but we want the keys to the car. So they gave them the keys to the car, and they loaded their stuff into their own car, and they drove out of the neighborhood like they lived there. And uh, this was a few weeks ago, and to this day, they've not figured out who did it. Uh, my friends eventually were able to get the duct tape off and one of the cell phones still worked actually. And so they made their call and the police came and there's been investigation. These guys have done it like several other times since then. And they're real professionals. They know what they're doing. So that's a true story. It literally just happened, uh, I don't know, maybe two months ago, roughly. And, uh, Well, I think there is something inherently contradictory for a man to be wearing a mask, holding a gun, and robbing people, and claiming to be a Christian. It is a very poignant picture, I think, of 
the dichotomy between somebody who is professing to be a Christian and living in a very morally and unethical way and the picture of somebody who in the midst of being robbed says, do you know Jesus as your savior? Like if we look at that picture and we ask the question, who's the real Christian in the family room in a moment like that? The answer is quite obvious because to be claiming to be a Christian and to live a life of thievery and a life of fraud and a life of stealing is in sharp contradiction to an entire gospel message, which is not about taking, but about giving. And that's where we're going as we continue our series in the Ten Commandments. Thou on the Eighth Command, and if my memory serves me correct, that means there's this one and two more. Unless we want to add some once we get done with number 10. Um, So we're kind of coming in for the landing here with this one. Uh, But let's get into it now. Exodus 20, verse 13. We're going to spend two weeks on this one command. Here is how the uh, ESV translates it. Listen carefully. You shall not steal. Here's the New American Standard translation. You shall not steal. Here's the NIV translation of the Hebrew text. You shall not steal. And how about the King James just going old school here a second? Thou shalt not steal. So apparently there's not a lot lost in translation here. It is not a difficult one uh, to capture at least what it is saying. But the question we have is really what, what is it about stealing that makes it morally and ethically wrong? What is it about stealing that makes it stealing? So that's where we're going here. And let's begin that question then. What is stealing? If the, if the text says you shall not steal, there is something we are not to do. Let's make sure we know that thing that we are not to do. If we were to ask a kid, what's stealing? They probably would respond like, taking something that's not yours. Which isn't a bad definition of stealing. Taking something that isn't yours. But under that, there is all kinds of moral and ethical assumptions that are being made that actually have shaped human history. As an example of this, in the earliest, earliest part of the last century, during the Bolshevik Revolution under Lenin, the communists in Russia uh, take over that country on a principle that is basically this, what is yours is ours. Communism does not acknowledge the right to private property, and we are therefore in a situation where we are largely communally uh, sharing our resources, and we're all in this together. Better to be together than to be apart, so give all your things to the government, and we will make sure everybody is taken care of. That is the political system of communism, or its uh, economic sister, which is socialism, does similarly. It says that in socialism, it is not private, individual property and rights that are the basis of society. It is the, the grouping of those into a central state or a central government that uh, is really the way to go. 
Now just pause for a moment and think about in the 19th or in the 20th century, how many millions of people died as a result of just communism, just to pick that one. Stalin, uh, the later iteration of Lenin, killed 15 million of his own people, establishing rule and power. So basically, you don't want a communist as your neighbor. To look at your things and say, what is yours is, is ours now. You don't have rights to that property, which of course is what the Ukraine is learning right now. You don't want a communist as your neighbor or to ask the question, when Russia took Crimea recently, was it a crime? Now, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about because you haven't looked at the news in like years. The last thing you know is Kennedy was shot and you've not looked at it ever since. Okay. So behind the eighth command is an underlying assumption that the rights that an individual have to personal property are rights that God acknowledges. The reason it's wrong for me to look at what you have and to say what, what is yours is now mine is because that is to take the place of God who gave that to that person to steward. I am saying you shouldn't have it. I'm going to have it. You don't have rights to these possessions. Okay, so we haven't really defined stealing yet. How about we use Martin Luther? You're always safe with Martin Luther. Here's how Martin Luther in his larger catechism says it. Stealing, eighth command, taking advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in loss to him. Okay, taking advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that it results in a, a, an illegitimate, maybe we would add, loss or an unfair, undeserved loss to him. Now, by that definition, we see that there are ways that we can steal from somebody without necessarily taking something that they have. For example, how about uh, pirated digital copying of music and videos? Just to pick one that I'm sure nobody here can relate to. Is it wrong? Is it stealing to copy Something that is under copyright laws owned by somebody else and not pay for it. Does God care about the copies of things that we have in our house that we didn't pay for? And why would that be stealing? Because we could look at that and we could say, Hollywood, they're corrupt. I mean, they're immoral there in Hollywood. I'm not giving them a dime. I'm going to copy this. They got lots of money anyway, so it's not hurting anybody, and it's only 99 cents on iTunes. I mean, God doesn't care about 99 cents. They don't need the 99 cents. I'm going to copy this, and I'm going to be okay with it. Okay. Is, that, is that stealing? Does God care about our pirated music library as an example? How about the people I see when I go through uh, the toll road who fake throw when there isn't an arm to come down? Have you seen that before? 
you know, the fake throw, they throw like this. There's no money in their hand, but they do this, right? And off it goes. What's that? Okay. Or what about people that I hear from the people that count our money who put offering envelopes in the offering with no money in it? Look at me. I'm giving my offering, but there's nothing in it. Or how about friends of mine that I had in college who would send letters home and to different places by not putting stamps on the envelope, but putting in the return address the address that they actually wanted it to go to. Now, if you're here right now going, that's a fantastic idea. You are missing the point of what the Eighth Command is calling us to. And here is where the whole matter of integrity and character is largely shaped by the way we approach issues related to the Eighth Command. Because the human heart can devise unlimited schemes and little work angle things. I can do this and do that. And then I don't have to pay that. And I'm avoiding that. You know, I'm, I'm evading. I'll use the word evading the tax that I'm supposed to pay. Here we are just a few weeks after tax day. Is it, is it wrong to avoid taxes? No, that's the American way. Is it wrong to evade taxes? Is that stealing from the government? And you might say, well, it doesn't matter as long as it's not a big thing, right? I mean, it's only, it's only the uh, Enron executive type stuff that God really cares about or the Bernie Madoff kind of stuff. That's the only kind of financial misappropriation that God cares about. As long as it's a small number. I mean, as long as it's just some little thing, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care. It's just stamps. It's just stamps. Is it the size of the theft that matters in the eyes of God? Or do stamps matter to him? Well, here's the Heidelberg Catechism. Gives a definition of the eighth command. Says it well. What is it that God is forbidding? God forbids not only those thefts and robberies which are punishable by the magistrate. Okay? In other words, a lot of people say this. Hey, it's legal. There's no law against this. Therefore, it's ethical, right? As long as it's not illegal, then it must be ethical. I can't go to jail for this. So I'm okay doing it. So here we see Heidelberg Catechism, people smarter than us, noting that it's not simply the laws that the police or the FBI are going to nail us for. But he comprehends under the name of theft all wicked tricks and devices whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the good which belongs to our neighbor. Whether it be by force or under the appearance of our right, as by unjust weights and measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, usury, or by any other way forbidden by God, as also all covetousness. It's not simply the doing of it, but the coveting and the 
materialism that lies in my heart behind the desire to not put the stamps on the envelope that God also is speaking to with the eighth command. All waste and all abuse of his gifts, which is a whole nother thing. I'm not even going to spend time on other than to note that when God puts something in my disposal and I waste it frivolously, I am stealing from God his purpose in giving it to me in the first place. So the frivolous use of the things that God has given to me are also included in the eighth command. Now, if you've been tracking with this series, maybe you're thinking something that I want to um, affirm is true. Because you might look at the eighth command and say, no stealing, and say to yourself, why did God have to include that? Because isn't stealing kind of covered by the first command, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. I mean, if I, am, if I have God as my ultimate desire and the, the love of my heart and my desire is to live for his glory, then I am not going to be stealing from my neighbor or from God, right? First command kind of covers that. And the 10th command also covers stealing. You shall not covet your neighbor's anything. To, be, to steal is for me to see something that somebody else has and think that I ought to have it. And behind that is a desire to have what my neighbor has. So, technically, if you never covet something that your neighbor has, you're not going to steal it. So, why would God, if he's already got the whole category of theft and fraud covered by the first command and the tenth command, why would God go to the trouble of doubling down in his top ten and making it clear that you shall not steal? Well, I think this is because he knows the selfish, sinful human heart. And in the selfish, sinful human heart, it is most easily expressed in a lifestyle of taking rather than giving. Let me say that again. In the selfish, sinful human heart, God knows that it is most easily expressed in taking rather than in giving. And there are so many categories of taking. Just to give you some biblical uh, examples. This includes property theft, Exodus 22. Kidnapping, Exodus 21. Swindling, Amos 8. Stealing from widows and orphans, Matthew 23. Defrauding employees, James 5. Land theft, Isaiah 5. Unjust weights, Leviticus 19. Misleading somebody for economic gain, Proverbs 20. And since I'm giving a sermon on stealing, I will note that I got that list from John Frame. (laughs) Footnote. Now to these we can add so many other things, but just to give some examples of this. We can add gambling, defrauding on taxes, bogus insurance claims, identity theft, Schemes to save money at other people's expense, not working while I'm on the clock and stealing from my employer. And if you're an employer, not fairly compensating uh, employees for their work and their time. Stealing from God by not giving offerings 
And tithes, Malachi says, is, is stealing from the Almighty. The list goes on. And the reason the list goes on is that the human heart is like a factory of Ponzi schemes. The government can't write enough laws, right, to cover all of the innovative ways that people that want to do fraud and embezzle and whatever they're going to do can come up with. So they keep writing laws and laws and laws, and the human heart keeps scheming and finding ways around it, ways to cheat, ways to get ahead. Why is this? Because the human sinful heart is selfish, and its fundamental inclination is to be a taker rather than a giver. And it will take and take and take and take and take. Now, here's what I want us to realize this week as we talk about stealing, is that stealing is about God. Yes, stealing is about God. And what have I said over and over again in this whole series in the Ten Commands? All of the commands are about God. Every one of these tells us what God is like. So we, we go to the first command. You shall know the gods before me. What do we find out about God there? He is supremely worthy and glorious. And if I prop up something in my heart that I love and treasure more than God, I am denying God his rightful place as the most glorious God. Right? So the first command flows from the character of God. And if I take God's name and I use it in a profane way, I treat it like it's a common thing. I am denying something that is true about God, that he is ultimately glorious. And because he is glorious, so is his name. And if I take the life of an image bearer, sixth command, I am doing violence against somebody that bears the image of God. And I'm acting like I am the giver of life and the taker of life. And if I pledge to be pure in my love for my wife, and if I sleep around on her, I am saying something that isn't true about God, that he is a covenant breaker. But he is not a covenant breaker. He is a covenant keeper. And so that is why adultery and sexual sin is a violation of who God is. All the commands flow from the character of God. And here we are on the eighth command. No stealing. You shall not steal. What do we learn about God. What does it tell us about God? And I ask the question, is God a giver or is God a taker? Is God a thief or is God a benefactor? Now, this is one of these questions that in class, I hated it when teachers did this. They ask a question that is so obviously answered. Nobody wants to acknowledge it by saying anything because it's such an easy answer. And right now we know the answer, right? God is not a thief. He is not a robber. He never, he's, there's no fraud in God. God is a giver. God is a lover. And so therefore, every theft, every kidnapping, every fraud, every embezzlement, every shoplifting... Every not putting stamps on the envelope so I saved 25 cents back in the 80s. I am saying something about God that isn't true. That is what is at the core of the ethic of the Christian life is God. And God is not a taker. He is a giver. Go with me in your mind just back to the garden. Let's think about the very first sin. What was really going on with that? 
God takes Adam and Eve and says to them, all the trees of, the, of this garden, all the fruit of this garden, it's all yours. Enjoy it. Love it. But this one tree, this one isn't yours. You have no right to the fruit of this tree. Don't eat it. So they have millions to choose from, but where do they go and stare at the one? And what does the, the enemy tempt him with? Eve, if you eat of this, you'll be like God. If you have what this tree has, it will be for your gain, right? And so Eve stands there, and later Adam the same, and they look at that and they think, if I take what is not mine to have, it will be better for me. And we know from the story that that's exactly what they did. And yet, what was the result of that? Was it better? Was it gain? And obviously the answer is that it was completely loss. What did they lose? They lost the pleasure of God and fellowship with him. They lost their state of innocence before God. They lost their fellowship with one another. And ultimately, they lost their lives. For what? The fruit on that tree? And this is the way temptation always works. It hides the consequences and it convinces us that the small gain is worth the price. And of course, it was not. One of the Puritans, Richard Sibbs, said it this way. Satan gives Adam fruit and takes away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, let us consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. And that's the thing we have to realize about any of the violations of these uh, Ten Commands, this one in particular, is that on the surface, it looks like it's gain. Like if I, can, if I can embezzle money from my employer and do it secretly and never get caught, it's going to be awesome. Because then I can buy this and I can feel secure in my money with that. And I have, it's going to be gain to me. Thieves don't steal in order to be lost to themselves. They do it to be gained to themselves. But it always ends up being a loss in the end. Because God is not a thief. And God is not a taker. And the life of God is the best life to be lived. And there is more, way more joy in giving than there is in taking. Didn't Jesus say that somewhere? It's more blessed to give than to steal or receive (laughs) let's talk about god i mean to see how ugly sin is we have to see it in light of the amazing generosity of god how is god generous and we say our generous god in what ways is god generous and we begin within the trinity itself within those relationships in the trinity there is total selfless generosity the Bible talks about it. Let me give you just some verses of this, talking about the relationship there. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is what? Love. John 3, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. 
John 5, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. John 6, for I know, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. These verses are talking about what it's like to be within the Trinity and those relationships there where the Father gives and gives and gives for the Son and the Son gives and gives and gives for the glory of the Father and the Spirit and the Spirit. His whole purpose, Jesus says, is to bring glory to the Father. So within those relationships, there is selflessness. There is a willing heart, a spirit of giving, where they give for each other's joy and gladness. Or to say it this way, in the Trinity, there are no confidentiality agreements. There are no non-compete agreements. There are no locks on the door. There are no security cameras. There's, there's no private investigators. There's no distrust There is freedom and love flowing from the character of God, which is it in its essence, love, agape, hesed, persevering, self-giving, love for the good and joy of the other. I mean, it's awesome to be God in ways we don't realize because we're not God. But just the little glimpses that we get, I mean, would this not be like the greatest marriage of all time? If in that marriage there was no fear, no worry, no wondering, no distrust, where both members are absolutely, perfectly, selflessly giving for the joy of the other, that'd be a pretty good marriage, wouldn't it? And for those of us that have it, I'm kidding. We're all sinners, right? That's kind of the point. You know, within marriage or whatever friendship, we look at the relationships within the Trinity and we think that'd be fantastic. First John, perfect love casts out fear. There's no reason to fear where there is love. And so there is no stealing and no fear of it within the Godhead. He is generous or they are generous to one another. How about creation? How do we know that God is generous? He made everything. And what a wonderful world he made. Right? I could sing the song, Louis Armstrong. What a wonderful world, right? It's true. And as many of you know, this is a particular passion for me to help Christians not live like atheists in this sensory pleasurable wonderful world that is around us and to look at the sunset and to think about god and to realize that god made it brilliant and beautiful and me eyes and a heart to aesthetically enjoy that experience as a generous gift to us or to go to cold stone and to look at that cookies and cream with a layer of fudge on top and not look at it like an atheist, right? And to realize that God made these molecules to work together in a way that my tongue delights in it. Or the coffee bean. How can you not look at the coffee bean and be amazed at the goodness of God, right? This creation 
at the atomic level, at the galactic level, is glorious and beautiful. And when God purposed to make all of this and to place us in it, he did so as a generous gift to us. He is a generous God. But if there is a place where we most clearly see the generosity of God and the fact that he is a taker, not a giver, it is in salvation. When we really think about what has God done in salvation, it is one massive giving from God and one eternal receiving from us. Why do I say that? Well, listen, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is an example. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he gave, he self-emptied, he became one of us, he died on the cross for us. All words covered by the word poor there. We didn't have to steal it from God, he willingly gave it. He willingly gave it. So that you by his poverty might become rich. Or famously, here's the famous passage in Philippians 2. Paul writes this to a group of people that weren't getting along. And they were all about their rights. My rights. He says, let, this, let each of you not look, look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, now there's a novel thought in the church. To be about other people's best interests. Should I linger on that a while? That'd be good for us to hear what it means to be a part of a church family where you're not in it for yourself. You're not thinking how I feel, how I, this impacts me. But it's all about him. And because it's all about him, then I can't be about me and I need to be about them. Because God was about them through Jesus. Should I linger some more? Are you with me on that? Okay. To be about the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, gave, there it is, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he went even another step of self-giving. He humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, by the way, even death on a cross. Now leave that passage up there for me if you could, if you put that back up there. I want you to see in this God and what God is truly like. And all of this is trying to say to us that the one who has supreme rights and glory is the one who willingly divests himself for who? For us. But wait a second. We're the thieves. We're the robbers. That's why I love the picture of my friend so much. In the midst of the guy robbing him, he turns around and extends grace and an offer of salvation through Jesus. We're the robbers in that story, and my friend is God. 
That passage there should humble all of us, I think. Is your spiritual walk a little dry right now? You're sort of going through the motions, maybe even being here today? In some way, I would bet it is because you have forgotten the generosity of God to you. And you're here in the spirit of taking. And God is eternally a giver. And the life of God produces a life of generosity. Not taking. That's the opposite of that. But of giving. I love Romans 8.32. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. I remember some years ago, I, I've only been able to be at John Piper's church, I think, once or twice. Happened to be there one weekend. And he got up and he said, my text today is Romans 8.32. And I leaned over to my friend and I said, this is going to be good. You can hardly mess up that text. What's it say? But God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? How generous has God been to us? Did he give us tips? Did he give us small things, stamps? Did God give us stamps? No, when God displayed his love to us, while we were yet sinners, Christ gave. Christ died for us. And under this generosity, we are, what can we say? Humble? In awe? Because we don't know anybody like God. Your mom on her best day is not nearly as generous in love as God is towards us every day. This amazingly generous God. You know, the picture there at Golgotha, I think, is so poignant to the Eighth Command. Golgotha being the hill that Jesus was crucified on. You know the story, probably, how they took him outside the city and they nailed him to a Roman cross. They crucified him. And the Bible says that he was not the only one crucified that day. There was somebody on his right and there was somebody on his left. And oh, by the way, what, what was their crime? They were thieves. Now, we don't know what they took. But I'm thinking if the Romans decide to execute you, they weren't taking paper clips from the post office. So these are professionals. These are serial type thieves who are about to die. The picture, I think, is a poignant one. There were three men crucified that day. Two of them were takers. But the one in the middle was the greatest giver 
of all time. And the contrast there at Golgotha beautifully pictures what the eighth command is all about. We are the thieves on the cross. We rob, we steal, we defraud, we covet, we're about us. We have an opportunity to work some angle to the loss of another, but to our gain, we don't care, right? Why? Because it's about me and I am in my life. I am taking and I am accumulating and I am getting as much as I can, legitimate or not. I don't care. I am, I am taking. And sinners, that's what we do. We're takers. But love is not simply the absence of thievery, but the presence of giving. And my friends, this is what I want us to realize here. Because I don't want anybody to walk out of here going, well, that was a boring sermon because I've never robbed a bank. It certainly wasn't for me. I've, I've, you know, I used to copy files, but I don't anymore. I, I was in Napster, but closed the account. So this command doesn't apply to me. My friend, you could have never stolen a single thing your entire life and never fulfilled the eighth command. It is not calling us to a life of non-stealing. It is calling us to the very life of God, a life of selfless giving, of generosity, of non-materialism, of non-coveting, but actually giving of myself for the good and joy of others, to the glory of God. In fact, we could ask the question, when is the thief no longer a thief? You could say, well, when he doesn't steal. Here is Ephesians 4.28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Okay, that's a good start. If you are every day robbing from your employer, a good place to start tomorrow is to not do that anymore but does that mean that you've been fulfilling the command i'm living a life in pleasure to god because i'm not stealing money from my employer anymore no the verse goes on what is the thief the former thief to do but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need there you have it The fulfillment of the eighth command is when I look at my life as being one massive repository for whatever God puts at my disposal for the purpose of primarily living out that same generous life that God has been to me and Jesus by being generous for the good and joy of others. It's the life of love. Love gives. Hate takes. Hate robs. Hate steals. But love gives. And we know that because Jesus gave his life on the cross for us. Let's go back to the story of my friend who was being robbed. There were two men there, at least one of them claiming to be a Christian. I mean, is that not classic? Do you know Jesus as your savior? Yeah, but I don't want to talk about it right now. I'm sure you don't, right? Because you might feel a little conviction about the gun in your hand, right? Sure, you don't want to talk about that. My friend and this masked man both made profession 
Both claim to know Jesus. But one has a mask and is holding a gun and is taking what isn't his. The other, while being robbed, is concerned with the eternal destiny of the thief. One is clearly a taker, but the other is, only, is, is not only not a taker, but is actually giving grace to the one who is stealing from him. And I just think this is such a powerful picture of what the Eighth Command is saying to us because we rob God every day. What is sin? To fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. To fall short of my, God's ordained purpose for me to live entirely for his glory, which means that I am not and I am living for my own. I am self uh, curved on myself. I'm self-obsessed and taking from God. And we do this. We rob him of his glory. We take, we scheme. We, got, we rob God of his right as creator to rule our life. We live for money and we lie and we cheat and we steal and defraud in order to get it. And yet in the midst of all of this, this den of robbers that we call earth, in the midst of us robbing God, what does God do? He extends grace to us. In a sense, he says, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Because the way out of this life of taking is not to just go home and say, I'm not going to take anymore. It is to receive the forgiveness and the life change that comes by faith in the greatest giver of all time, Jesus, who gave his life for us. Now, the great news is, is that robbers and thieves can be saved. Did you know that? Now, you say, well, how do we know that? Let's go back to Golgotha a moment. Remember I told you there were two takers and one giver there on the cross? The Bible tells us in Luke that the one thief is heaping abuse on Jesus. The other thief begins doing that, but he has a change of heart. And here's the interchange, Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, and you just sort of see this, can't you? He, turn, he, he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now you talk about assurance of salvation. If Jesus says to you, today I'll see you there, you're going to make it. Paradise is yours. Well, now that's something I can probably rest in. And what a beautiful picture, isn't it? One giver two takers, one remains selfish to the end, the other sees in Jesus the promised Messiah, and to what extent, we don't, I mean, he, he believed enough for Jesus to tell him, 
I'm going to see you in paradise. And to realize that as he said that, he was bearing himself the guilt for whatever made that man be crucified on the cross by the Romans. And that's what we see then is in the giving of Jesus, he takes the guilt of all of our thievery and all of our robbing and all of our Ponzi and all of our our, uh, schemes and all of our stamps and all of that. He takes that guilt. And on the other side of our faith, which we don't take, we receive, right? He says, uh, go and sin no more. This life of selfish taking, this is not the, the, the path to joy. It is to live the example then of Jesus, not to be saved, but because I am saved. Where I don't want to steal anymore. I wonder if today you can say that in your heart. To the best that you know and to the best that you can, you never want to steal anything. But to live a life of integrity. Now we're going to walk out of here and we're going to violate that desire we have right now in some way. That's not to justify it. But it does acknowledge the reality that we are sinners, great sinners, great thieves. But Christ is a great Savior. And I say to the room full of robbers, that's the only word that comes to my mind, thieves like us, put your faith and trust in Jesus. And turn from that life of sin. And step into the new life that comes in Christ. But beware, because what Jesus is going to do is he is going to take you and turn you from a taker into a giver. Which to the thief seems ridiculous. But for those of us who have tasted the grace of God, it is merely following the example of our Savior who gave his life for us. Now, lots of implications to this, but you're going to have to come back next week. We'll get more into this. And with that, would you stand with me for prayer?